It's my great pleasure and joy to introduce our speaker today. Some of us have spent part of our weekend with him. Um, his name is Reverend Keith Cron, and as Barb pointed out, he's director of the Transitions Office for the UA. He's been working with our search committee in helping us on our path to finding a, a new minister. Um, so he is going to be delivering the sermon today, and let's give him a warm welcome. Thank you. It is so good to be with you. I wish I could be here, be there with you in person. Hopefully the world will change enough so that will be possible sooner rather than later. I'm sharing with you uh, a story for the child and all of us. The star of the story is our friend Penelope. Um, uh, a little Tyrannosaurus Rex. The title of the story is We Don't Eat Our Classmates. It's by the author Ryan Higgins, and it's about Penelope and her first day of school. Penelope Rex was nervous. It's not every day a little T-Rex starts school. What are my classmates going to be like? Will they be nice? How many teeth will they have? This was very important to Penelope. Penelope's mom bought her a new backpack with ponies on it. Ponies were Penelope's favorite because ponies are delicious. Penelope's dad packed her a lunch of 300 tuna sandwiches and one box of apple juice. Finally, the big day came. And Penelope Rex was very surprised to find out that all of her classmates were children. So she ate them because children are delicious. Penelope Rex said, Mrs. Doodleman, we don't eat our classmates. Please spit them out at once. So she did. It was not the best way to start school. Still, Penelope was determined to have a good first day. She tried hard to make friends at recess, but standing at the bottom of the slide with her mouth open didn't help her. She finger painted some of her best work, but it was a picture of her eating a classmate. She even saved Griffin Emery a seat at lunch. You can sit here next to me, she said. He didn't. Penelope started to notice that everyone was making friends but her. And it was lonely. When she got home, her dad asked her about her first day of school. I didn't make any friends, Penelope cried. None of the children wanted to play with me. Penelope Rex, her father asked, did you eat your classmates? Well, maybe just a little bit. Sometimes it's hard to make friends, said her dad, especially if you eat them. 
You see, Penelope, children are just the same as us on the inside, only tastier. This gave Penelope a lot to think about. And the next day, Penelope tried really hard at school. But poor Penelope, she couldn't stop herself from eating her classmates. Mrs. Noodleman, Penelope ate William Amoto again. And so all the students were afraid of her, even after she spit him out. All of them were afraid of her except for Walter. Walter was the goldfish. So Penelope tried to make friends with him. Will you be my friend? She asked Walter the goldfish and she stuck her finger into the bowl to pet Walter and Walter just went chomp and bit her finger. Eee, cried Penelope, he's eating my finger. Wah! But once Penelope found out what it was like to be someone's snack, she lost her appetite for children. She stopped eating her classmates, even when Cece Woodman spilled barbecue sauce all over herself. And soon Penelope began making friends. She played hide and seek. She made brownies that she helped make. And now, even when children look especially delicious, she peeks at Walter and remembers what it's like when someone tries to eat you. And Walter the goldfish stares back and he licks his lips. Because dinosaurs, are delicious. That is the story of Penelope Rex, We Don't Eat Her Classmates. This morning for our sermon, I have two shorter readings to set up uh, the sermon. The first one is from a woman named Emily Bernard. She wrote a book called Black is the Body. Emily Bernard is a woman who some 28 years ago was an African-American graduate student at Yale. She was in a coffee shop one night when a man walked in, a man with mental health issues, and began stabbing the people inside the coffee shop. In her, in her books, she writes about violence and the violence that happened to her that evening. She writes, I did experience terrible pain on the night of August 7th. The person responsible for it was the surgeon on call. I lay on a gurney feeling helpless and afraid. The surgeon walked over and without saying a word to me or even looking in my direction, plunged his fingers into my gaping wound. I gasped and I immediately grasped his hand. It was only then that this man looked at me and said icily, don't touch my hand. His eyes were airy and blue and as cold as his voice. 
I asked questions about what was happening to me, and he refused to respond. Only the attending nurses treated me with any kindness and respect. And whenever I tell the story of the night that I got stabbed, I always say the person who did the most injury to me, who left the deepest wounds, was not Daniel Silva, the young man who stabbed me who had mental health issues, but it was in fact the surgeon. The second reading is an observation I wrote on my Facebook page from a couple of years ago. It's entitled, Unclenching. It was nearly a perfect day for a walk. I wasn't alone. My favorite sighting on my street in Providence was a woman walking her adorable French bulldog down the street. I heard good boy Luke several times as she pulled slightly on the leash to keep Luke from being too distracted. Around the corner comes a young man with a pit bull. Luke immediately goes stock still. But the pit bull is wagging her tail with the greatest of hope and charm, clearly excited about the possibility of a new friend. And she certainly won me over. The woman is trying to get Luke to move forward, but it's in vain because he is playing statue. Eventually, the man with the pit bull reaches the woman and Luke, and if possible, Luke gets even stiffer. The woman is trying to tell Luke that it's okay, and the pit bull sniffs hopefully and inquisitively at her new wished-for friend. And then, in an instant, Luke relaxes and sniffs back. And quickly, their tails are all wagging as they sniff, and nuzzle and snort. And I notice the owners have relaxed and they have unclenched and they are now talking amiably, though near as I can tell, their tails are not a wagging with the same veracity as their pets. It's only then that I realized that I had been clenching and now feel my own body relaxing. I left the happy foursome and headed off thinking how much of a metaphor this has become for today's times, how we all seem to be living lives of trepidation, and yet hope and kindness are out there if we look beyond stereotypes, if we present ourselves with kindness, if we just try. I think about the reputations that pit bulls have, and yet she was the kindest of all. Maybe in these trying and difficult times, we need to be a little bit more like this pit bull in whatever ways we can, offering a little hope and kindness to those new friends we might make. Even before the tragic events in Michigan this week, the ideas around violence and harm have been a lot on my mind. Michigan just made that more clear, more into focus. And I've been spending a lot of time thinking about church and violence, religion and violence. And I remember it was just over three years ago that a man walked into a synagogue in Pittsburgh and opened fire, killing too many congregants. But it was just another 
couple of months before that, that there was a revelation about the sex scandal within the Roman Catholic Church, within the Diocese of Pittsburgh. And those two events have really caused me to think about why does anyone trust religion at all? What is its purpose? But I'm reminded of writer and Unitarian Universalist minister, the Reverend Robert Fulgham, who says, to be human is to be religious. To be religious is to be mindful. To be mindful is to pay attention. And to pay attention is to sanctify existence. And I believe that we live with all of these religious questions, and certainly you are living with these religious questions in the midst of a ministerial search. This has made me think about trainings that I do for ministers. And I asked ministers recently on two different uh, workshops to create a list. What do you think a congregation needs from a minister these days? They wrote the things that you would expect. They said good preaching, pastoral counseling, uh, someone to make sure that there is someone to supervise staff. But what really intrigued me was what they didn't say. No one said, we need a minister with whom we can build trust. We need a minister who will actively work to do no harm. And that made me think, I don't think in 12 years of being in this job, I've ever heard a search committee, they say that needed from, those two things needed from a minister. And yet I think both are essential to ministry. And perhaps we assume that they are just simply unsaid, but I think we are at a moment where we need to consciously say them, to talk to them, that this could be a way to begin to rebuild trust in religion. How do we show up in the wider world? How do we show that we believe in one another and humanity? Was thinking also about violence because it was just 23 years ago when I showed up in Laramie, Wyoming, following the tragic death of Matthew Shepard. I was only one of two religious denominations to show up to support the religious people in Wyoming after this particular event. I had been asked by the local minister in Laramie to show up, to say a few words to the congregation, to join them as they went out to the fence where Matthew had been left to die and lay some flowers. I thought it was a very important thing to do. So I showed up in Wyoming, attended the church that morning, the minister at the time, a brand new minister who was very nervous, read a letter that someone had written to the congregation in support, turned to me and said, or I was expecting him to say, and now Reverend Cron will say a few words, instead said, and now Reverend Cron will deliver the morning sermon on Matthew Shepard's death. Stunned, surprised, I don't remember what I said. I do remember that I talked for a few minutes and I remember that I talked about the need for religion to, to rise above and witness against this kind of violence. 
After the service, we went out to the fence where Matthew Shepard had been left to die. The minister and I laid some flowers next to the fence where Matthew had been tied up and left. And the minister turned to me and said, and now Reverend Cron will lead the memorial service for Matthew Shepard. Again, I don't remember what I said, but I do remember that it was important just to be there and to be there with these people when unspeakable things happen. It is important that we witness to the world that we can be something different. Later, I asked the minister about why he had asked me to do a sermon when what he had told me was to say a few words and why he said this. And he said, I'm brand new. I have no idea what to do in these situations. And that I understood because often in the name of unspeakable tragedies, we don't know what to do. But what we do can do is show up for each other, to be present to each other, to just sit with each other, and to listen to each other as we try and make sense of a world that often doesn't make sense. This notion of building trust is so important. And I think about the uh, author and psychologist, Brene Brown, who talks about how trust is truly built, not in big moments, but in little moments, the little things that we do for each other. Things like showing up, even when we don't know what to say. But that also made me think that if trust is built in little moments, it can also be broken in little moments. And I immediately thought back to seminary. I was in a class on death and dying. And the professor of the class, uh, a woman named Anna Stern, who had survived the Holocaust as a child, who now worked with uh, young people who were contemplating suicide, who was teaching the class, had us one day practice being chaplains for someone in a hospital who had experienced a serious accident, who simply couldn't move, um, their life was in some peril. What would it be to show up when someone had almost no or little hope? So she had one student pretend to be the patient and then she asked for a volunteer to go over and to pretend to be the chaplain and to practice what being a chaplain was like. So the young man who went over to be the chaplain sat down next to the patient in the bed and took the patient's hand. And just as he was about to speak, Anna stood up and said, please never do that again. And everyone turned and looked at Anna to try and figure out what on earth she was talking about. But then she imparted this wisdom. She said, I want you all to think about this patient. This is a person who doesn't know what is going to happen to their life. They have no control over their body. You walked over to this person and took his hand without asking. So what you have done is you have actually taken more control away from him. What would have happened if you had asked first, if you had given him permission to either nod yes or no, 
to give him some little control over his life in that moment. He said, violence like that happens in those little moments when even when we think we're doing good things, we are in fact making someone more uncomfortable. It's more important that you just show up, that you just listen, that you ask for permission. It's a story that I have not forgotten and remind myself of on a daily basis since I was in ceremony, in, in seminary, and how important that is. Uh, right before um, things closed down, I was at the UUA talking with a colleague of mine. He was visiting his son outside of Cleveland for his birthday. And for his birthday, my friend was taking his son, who was in his mid-20s, and two of my son, his son's friends, to a baseball game at Cleveland. And as they were going by, they drove by our congregation on the west side of Cleveland, uh, West Shore UU congregation, and on the building, there was this huge rainbow flag, this huge sign that said, Black Lives Matter. And immediately the three 20 year olds began talking and they began saying things like, well, if I were to go to church, that is the church I would want to go to. This is a church that's trying to make the world better. This is a church that is trying to make a difference in people's lives. And I was impressed with that story and it made me wonder what would happen if they really did show up in this church wanting to make a difference in the world wanting to be a part of making a difference in our world. I'm sure as 25 year olds, they would be told, you are welcome here. But what sort of little stipulations would we put on them? You are welcome here as long as you act like all the people who are 60 and over here. You are welcome here as long as you serve on three committees like the rest of us. You are welcome here as long as you give at the same rate as the people do. In what ways would we expect our those 25-year-old guests to be like the people who are already there? Could we let them be who they are as 25-year-olds, living a very different life than the folks who are older? We often do the same thing for people of color, for Black, Indigenous people of color, who show up in our congregations. You are welcome here as long as you act exactly like us, as long as you think like us. How do we honor and create the diversity of thought that we actually claim to believe? How do we honor the inherent worth and dignity and journey of every person, of every seeker? How do we let people be them there are times when we as Unitarian Universalists can be as fundamentalist as folks on the right. Sometimes we do eat our classmates instead of just listening to them and learning from them. This, I think, this pandemic has provided an opportunity for people to think about the world, what they want, who they want to be, coming out of this pandemic into whatever the next normal is, could be a golden age for Unitarian Universalism. 
Will we be able to reach out for those who need a faith like, like ours? One that actually says we welcome all people, regardless of race, gender, sexual orientation, ability, theology, age. Or will we be a group that just simply says we only want people exactly like us? Will we circle our own wagons? I have sometimes met congregations where I think what they really need is a hospice chaplain because they are so unwilling to think about who could be a Unitarian Universalist other than if they are exactly like them. In the workshop this weekend, and thanks to those who were able to come, um, uh, we, I shared uh, a thought from a Nigerian author Chimamanda Adichie, who writes about stereotypes. And this is what she says. The single story creates stereotypes. And the problem with stereotypes is not that they are untrue, but that they are incomplete. They make one story the only story. I often think one of the great things about Unitarian Universalism is that we often stay that we are all more than one story and that more than one story can be with us on Sunday morning. And my question is, how do we live that? How do we build that trust? How do we know our harm? Do we allow ourselves to be more than a single story? Or will we commit the little acts of violence and say, you have to be like those of us who are in the world? And in these complicated times, how do we unclench? How do we do no harm? How do we pay attention, sanctify existence? How do we be religious? I still remember the story my friend and former dean of my seminary, Bob Kindle, told me once. He told me the story of being in a meeting with the other deans of the theological schools uh, where I went. There were um, seven schools in, in this area. And he and his friend who were an American Baptist were talking about something and they disagreed with each other. They had completely different viewpoints. And he said, what fascinated me is that the other deans were trying to make it better. They were trying to find some way to get them to, to, be, to be in agreement with each other. And finally, Bob said, I want you to know that Jeff and I are friends. We disagree on this issue. We will be friends after this meeting is over. What is more important to me is that I hear what you believe so that we as a group can make the best decision for all of our schools. How can we be more than one story and disagree with each other? How do we not run from a diversity that will in fact strengthen us? This is, I think, the challenge of our times, the challenge of religion. This pandemic has changed all of us in some ways. I think the opportunity is what kind of person do we want to be with one another, even with people who are different? I have a final story that I want to close with. This is from 25 years ago. I had just started at the UUA as the director of its office a bisexual, gay, lesbian, and transgender concerns 
and I had gone to a conference with other religious leaders. And on the first day, we were all seated, and remember this is the, the late 90s, at this huge table, we were passing microphones back and forth, and seated next to me is uh, John from the Church of Christ, and on the other side of me is Mark from the Church of God. And John gets to the microphone and he says, hi, my name, is, my name is John. I'm here today representing the Church of Christ, and I am to the right of the right. He smiles and he hands the microphone to me. And I go, hello, my name is the Reverend Keith Prawn. I'm the director of the Office of Bisexual, Gay, Lesbian, and Transgender Concerns for the Unitarian Universalist Association. And by the time I got to that point, I had to stop talking because the noise that John and Mark were making from scooting their cha chairs away from me kept me from being heard. And when they, when they finally stopped, I said, and we are to the left of the left. It was a conference on religion, gender, and sexuality. Um, we spent four days talking about all of these topics. People were amazed even then that we had more women than men in ministry that we actively supported the rights of gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgender people, that we had comprehensive sexuality education that we thought was important uh, for uh, people of all ages to uh, participate in. On the fourth day, John and Mark and two of their friends, probably named Matthew and Luke, though I don't remember now, came up to me and they said, we would like to have lunch with you. And I thought, oh, all right, this is going to be fun. I had grown up a Southern Baptist in Tennessee. All four of these folks were from Tennessee. I knew how to talk to these people. Um, and they were my teachers that day because we sat down at lunch and began talking about a few things. And finally, Mark said, you know, we just wanted you to know, the four of us have been talking. We have listened to you for the last four days. And we wanted you to know that we have disagreed with literally everything you have said. But we also wanted you to know that we respect you. Because at least you are clear about what you believe. We are frustrated with the people who are trying to find some way for us all to be together because we're not going to be together. And in some ways it's easier to be with you than for the people who can't make up their minds. It was a profound moment for me in thinking about that. Eventually, we returned to somewhat safer topics like football because we were all from Tennessee, all big fans of football. They were surprised that I liked football, and they were even more surprised that I knew more about football than all four of them. So I got a chance to be their teacher that day as well. We all got a chance to be together, to be more than a single story with each other and to benefit from 
that diversity. This is my hope for our faith. This is my hope for our future, that we will embrace the diversity we have, welcome more of it, and use it as a way to find a strength in our faith and our religion for a world that really needs it. We don't have to be good at it as we did yesterday in the work workshop. We just spent some time practicing. How do we have complicated and di difficult conversations? We just have to commit being people who are willing to sit with each other, to listen to each other, and to let people be where they are, whatever space they are in. This is my hope for our faith, for Unitarian Universalism, that we can be a faith that commits to building trust, to doing no harm, to sanctifying existence, and to be religious together in all the wonderful ways that we can be. So may it be.